Hail brothers, this is Didact, and I'm back with another domain query installment. Uh, this is in relation to an interesting set of questions posed by reader RT from uh, my Telegram channel, the Didactic Mind channel. So this is domain query, rather, more money, more problems. And this relates to the Didactic Mind podcast episode, uh, episode 105, actually, that I did last week, in which I talked about the evolution of money and the derangement of the money supply and why that is so dangerous in a long and quite ranty episode of the podcast. And I posted it to my Telegram channel, and uh, it's a really good channel. I mean, if you haven't joined already, please make sure you do so and make sure that you subscribe on Telegram. It's a fantastic alternative to Facebook and Twitter. I don't use either of them. And it allows you to kind of just hang out with a like-minded community of just guys. Uh, it's a very much a guys channel. The community that we have there is a lot of fun. Uh, it's a, some really good um, long-time faces from the site, or I mean, not faces, but people who, readers from the site who have migrated over to Telegram. And the comments are a lot of fun. I mean, we've got a, a pretty decent sized set of regular commenters now who interact and engage. And it's very respectful, very, uh, very sort of down to earth, but just a, a really good community of really decent men. And that's exactly what I wanted to build. I wanted to create something interactive, something fun, something irreverent, but something that also caters to men of a Christian background looking to uh, try to make sense of a world plainly gone absolutely batshit insane. So please make sure you click on the link to subscribe to Telegram uh, and download the app onto your PC or your phone, preferably both because you need a phone number to activate it. And uh, you can post anonymously, you can join, and uh, it is a private group. So, you know, if you join, um, it, you can be assured that it's not something that will be searchable from the outside, because it's not. Uh, but it's just a really good channel that I curate and moderate myself. And I update it many times a day with lots of different news items from various feeds. And I also provide a daily 10-minute update almost every day. There are some days where I'm just like absolutely exhausted. I can't be asked to, to uh, provide an update of any kind. But uh, overall, it's just a really, really good place to be. And while you're at it, make sure you check out some of the links in the description box. As with anything else, I mean, in a world where you can be persecuted for your political beliefs and your opinions, uh, make sure that you have a VPN installed if you don't already. Check out Surfshark, it's in the description box. You can get an amazing deal on a subscription for two years at 80% off. And check out Incogni, which is their latest product, Surfshark's latest product. It's essentially a way of handling your data and make sure that your data is fully protected and is fully under your control so that companies that do data mining and data scraping to uh, sell your data onto the highest bidder can no longer profit off of you without your consent. So you own your own data. Check those out. Like I said, everything's in the description box and uh, make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe this podcast 
make sure you subscribe to the site as well. So on the subject of this uh, domain query episode itself, as I said, Telegram reader, a good friend of the site, good friend of the channel, uh, RT, who is from the Czech Republic and uh, you know, from Czechia, and he often provides a lot of insights into what's going on in Czechia itself with respect to all the, the political instability in the wake of the Banderistan War. He asked a few questions about um, the purpose, origin of money, and a few other things. So uh, I'll read out his full set of questions, and I'll go through and answer them one at a time. Uh, weren't money established as a means to pay taxes, among other things? I guess it would be historically defendable, and one way of centralizing power in the hands of the state was to remove the right to coinage of local lords, at least here in Europe. It also raises the interesting question if cryptocurrency is money. There is political dimension to economy, and I can understand Europe's desire to be independent from Russian energy supplies as much as possible, although why to be dependent on the US? Question mark. Autarky is hardly an achievable goal, but still. That leads to the question, what domestic resources Europe has, uh, e.g. coal, and if or to what extent they could replace Russian or American gas? From this point of view, even the so-called green energy has a merit if it is manageable. This question arises due to the fact that Europe was a rich continent even before importing Russian gas, and there is no guarantee that in two generations, Russian government will still be as reasonable as it is today. So this is a really great series of questions, and I didn't want to just give a, you know, a few one-line answers in a Telegram post. I thought that this really deserves to be uh, opened up. And again, I mean, I'm very grateful for uh, RT bringing these things to the fore, and uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to answer these questions. Um, and as you can see, this is the kind of thing that we get out of the Didactic Mind community. So I'm a big fan of this sort of interaction, and this is what I encourage very strongly on the channel. So with respect to the questions raised, let's go through them one by one. And these are very important questions which deserve thoughtful answers. If we look at what, how money came to be, how was it established? Was it established to pay taxes, first and foremost? Uh, the answer is no, it wasn't. Money kind of, the, the reality is that money arose naturally. And as far as I'm able to determine, money has been around since basically humanity has been around. Some form of money of some kind or another has always existed. Um, money is fundamentally, as I've said in, as I said in my previous podcast, money is the translation of your life into, or of your time into value. It's literally a translation of your life into the things that you can buy. That's all it comes down to. And that is the fundamental reality of money. Now, does that mean that money therefore came about as a way to pay taxes? Well, no, because if you look historically at how taxes were levied, they were not necessarily levied in the form of money. They were actually very often levied in the form of goods. Uh, if you look back at the earliest records that we have of civilization, Taxes or offerings or requirements to the government were often measured in, most often measured in terms of goods. I mean, you can find this in the Bible if you go to Leviticus uh, and you look at the laws of Leviticus. What goes, what, what it says over and over and over again is in terms of measures and weights, 
it talks about uh, FHAs or um, you know, uh, basically units of flour and barley and wheat and oil and you know, uh, seed and things of this nature. And that was actually typically what people had to offer up as taxes. This is the reality of a, an agrarian economy when your entire life income, when your entire uh, livelihood depends on how, many, how much crop you produce or how much milk or how, much, um, how many cows or how many goats you produce, your, your, your farms and your land produces, then it makes the most sense to tax people in those terms. And that's exactly what historically was done uh, to, to bring in kind of revenue into the state coffers. Now, from there, it is true that people would translate or governments would translate that into some form of monetary value, gold or silver. Well, why is that? Because, again, you need a way, this is one of the fundamental functions of money, you need a way to store that value somehow. I mean, a cow or a goat or bushels of grain will only be valuable for a certain amount of time. They're valuable, yes, intrinsically very valuable. But when you're bringing all that money in as tax, like all that produce in as tax revenue, and the tithe typically back then was, you know, what, 10%, roughly speaking, uh, of a person's income, and it could, it could become substantially higher. I mean, tithes of 20 to 30% were not uncommon. Um, but, you know, keep in mind that while that sounds very reasonable by today's standards, where you're taxing people 30 to 40 to 50, you know, 60% in some cases, keep in mind that back then, most people could really live only a subsistence living. So taxing somebody 10% of what he produced meant that he would have to eat 10% less. That's, that was a very stringent tax upon the common people, which is one of the reasons why tax rates back then compared to what they are now look a lot lower. But as a percentage of a person's ability or a person's caloric intake, they're quite high. So one of the great miracles of industrialization is the ability to specialize in particular fields of endeavor that allow us as human beings to produce far more than just subsistence level. Now, one of the misfortunes of that is that because of this, we no longer need 98% of our income or 98% of our labor to pay for all of our food and uh, just our basic needs. We can go well beyond that now. So that's one of the reasons why taxation is as high as it is. But uh, again, money in and of itself was not, as far as I can tell, invented to uh, established as a means to pay taxes. Actually, you could pay taxes in other ways. I mean, you, most, most people in an agrarian society did pay taxes in other ways. They would pay it in the form of goods and services. I mean, if, the, if you couldn't pay uh, in the form of, if you couldn't pay your, your taxes or your debts to the government or to somebody else in the form of stuff you made or stuff you pulled out of the ground, 
you would have to sell yourself. You would become a bond servant, a slave, an indentured servant in many cases. So how do you establish a, a monetary value on that? Well, you establish it through money, yes, but you couldn't back then take out a loan easily and then kind of pay it off through time. Instead, you would pay off your loan through your work directly. You wouldn't get the money from someone else and then use it to pay it off. You wouldn't borrow the money from somewhere to pay it, use it to pay off your taxes to the government. It didn't work that way. So, you know, when we look back in time, we'll see, we see that this is the, uh, the way of doing things. Now, does that mean that money was always centralized to the state? Um, not quite. Actually, if you look at the history of money, and this is not something that I'm overly familiar with, but if you look at the history of money, you might be surprised to see just how much money was privately minted. I mean, seriously, like money was not always under the control of the state. There were lots and lots of private entities, private banks that had the ability to create their own coins. And that was legal tender. I mean, because it was gold or silver, even though it wasn't state-generated or state-denominated, um, it was still considered legal because it carried a very high content of gold or silver. Even today, even in the modern day and age, it is still possible for banks in certain parts of the world to issue what are called promissory notes. These are actual notes that the banks themselves print out. They control the printing process. They control the uh, issuance of these notes. Uh, if you look at Scotland in particular, this is still very much permitted. Banks in Scotland, to the best of my knowledge, are allowed to print notes that are redeemable against that bank's assets and deposit base, and they are legal tender with the same exact weight and value as actual British pounds issued by Her Majesty, well, His Majesty's government now. Uh, that is a remarkable power. And in fact, the issuance of private money was one of the reasons why governments got involved in the whole racket of central banking in the first place. What do I mean by that? When you have a private entity that issues its own currency, it and it alone is responsible for the value of that currency. If it issues more promissory notes or more claims against itself than it has assets to fulfill, then eventually the market will figure this out and will cause what is known as a bank run. Essentially, it will arbitrage away the value of those assets because it will say, well, you know, this bank says, it, it, let's say that the bank has $100 million worth of assets, but it issues $300 million worth of claims on those assets. Well, eventually, somebody's going to figure that out. Now, that bank is it holds all of that risk within itself. So that's a very powerful break upon the desire of people to just make quick profits by issuing lots of currency against limited deposits. If that bank fails, then the people who own that bank fail with it. 
there was always a very powerful incentive to avoid making stupid mistakes like that. Back when banks were really like limited liability partnerships where the partners themselves were liable uh, up to a, the legal limit, of course, for the decisions that they made. I mean, there's a, there's a very good argument to be had for returning investment banks to partnerships, private partnerships, where, you know, if you do something stupid with a bank's deposits, one of the partners can come around and say, you better uh, not screw around with my money because that's my money you're messing with. Uh, that would be a much better system than the, than the sort of socialized model of risk that we have today, where central banks are able to basically insulate private banks from their own stupidity and their own bad decisions. So uh, while there was some desire to centralize the power of the currency, that is true, it wasn't necessarily always that way. And I think what you'll find is if you go back through history, this is a relatively recent phenomenon, actually. Uh, there are many governments around the world that, you know, obviously tried to centralize weights and measures as much as possible. I mean, China, for example, Qin Shi Huangdi, uh, the, the, the emperor who built the Great Wall of China, was reviled as a dictator and a terrible man. But actually, one of the great benefits that he brought was the implementation of sound money and the implementation of universal weights and measures that have been used, had been used uh, since his time in China for like the next, I don't know, 2000 some years. Uh, he was a very wise man, a very terrible one, but also a very wise man. But that is not to say that it is impossible for private entities to issue some form of currency backed by their own assets. It is still possible to this day. Um, while it is a way of, while ownership of currency is a way of centralizing power, that is true, I agree with that. Uh, it's, not, it's not foolproof. There are ways to get around it. And indeed there are countries, there were and still are countries in the world where it was and is possible to issue private uh, currency as an alternative to existing government currency. And what you'll find is that even back in the history of the Great Depression, if you look at what, uh, if you read um, Amity Schley's, I'll leave a link to her book in the description box. Uh, she wrote a, an absolutely phenomenal book called The Forgotten Man. And I read it in, I think, 2008 or 2009, something like that. Uh, I think it was, uh, it might have been later than that, maybe 2010. Anyway, I read it, um, I remember, I actually remember reading it around the time of the financial crash in 08. So yeah, I was in, um, I remember actually, I was in Vancouver on the night that McCain lost to Obama, Odamas. And I remember vividly, I mean, I was in a hotel bar watching, you know, Obama's victory speech or whatever it was. Uh, and at the time, I remember I was reading this book and I was like, wow, this is just, everything in it is, relates back from, nine, from 1929 to 2008. This is a remarkable uh, correlation of events. You know, things seem to be following very much the same pattern. So anyway, in this book, she wrote about uh, something called the Valar, not from Tolkien's um, 
legendarium. It was an actual currency issued in the southwestern, I think, United States, in certain parts of that of, of the country and in the countryside, because the available supply of U.S. dollars had become so scarce that it was impossible for people to buy goods and services with it. Liquidity had dried up to such an extent because of bank failures that people couldn't make transactions for everyday items. So people basically invented their own currency called the Valar. And the Valar, it was like a valley dollar, uh, essentially. I think it was in the Tennessee Valley. And the idea was that because a currency, an acceptable standard of exchange did not exist, people invented one and the government couldn't control it. Now, it didn't last very long. I think the experiment was only for a few months uh, before it failed. But it goes to show that while governments have attempted to control money supply and regulate and centralize the available amount of money in an economy through ownership of the currency, it is by no means the only method for, uh, or, it is, or rather, it is, it is not always possible for a government to have a complete monopoly over the issuance of currency. There are ways for private entities to get around issuing currency and issue currency of their own. And this leads us to the next question of whether or not cryptocurrency is money. Now, this is a, this is a subject I happen to know quite a bit about. Um, if, the, if, you're, if you're asking whether cryptocurrency is money, you have to look at, what, first you have to define what is cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is a digital asset, yes. So it's, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin. These are cryptocurrencies, that's true, where essentially the supply of the token is controlled by something other than a government entity or a private bank or anything like that. It is instead controlled by an algorithm. Now, does a cryptocurrency of that sort fulfill the standards of money? Is it a medium of exchange? Is it a store of value? Is it a unit account? The answer to all three questions is no. For Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, um, you know, pretty much any crypto, crypto coin you care to name, not one of them f satisfies those definitions. Bitcoin is a terrible store of value. It's extremely volatile. If you try to use it to buy anything, you can't do that because most people don't accept Bitcoin. If you try to, uh, if you, if you try to use it as an accounting mechanism, to see how much something is worth, you can't do that either because nobody denominates anything in Bitcoin. So this is, you know, this is very much a part of the whole chicken and egg question of whether something is money or not. Something is money in large measure because everybody says it's money. Why is the, the US dollar money? Because everybody says the US dollar is money. If everybody said that cow's eggs are money, then cow's eggs would be money. I mean, despite the fact that such things don't exist. Um, the point is that just because something calls itself a currency, that doesn't mean it actually is a currency. And just because a government wants you to believe that something is a currency, that doesn't mean everyone's going to agree with you that it's a currency. So 
if you're talking about volatile cryptocurrencies, they are not money by any reasonable definition. They are speculative assets. Will that change uh, at some point in the near future? Maybe. And the answer is maybe. But there is a specialized class of crypto assets called stable coins, which generally speaking are considered money. And again, with stable coins, it's a weird and wonderful universe where there are four different subcategories of stable coins. Now, a stable coin is a type of a special type of cryptocurrency where the value of the token pegs itself to another asset. And there are four different types, broad categories of stable coins. There are fiat backed stable coins where you can redeem the token one for one against like the US dollar or the euro or the pound or the yen or what have you. And then there are algo, uh, well, there are actually uh, crypto backed stable coins where you buy, uh, you, you trade, you know, uh, actually typically an over collateralized amount. So if you look at, um, What's it called? Uh, Dai, uh, the um, the the Dai coin, D A I. That is, uh, I think, a one point five or even two to one peg of Bitcoin to Dai. So you trade, you know, for every Dai coin you want to buy, you have to sell, uh, you have to stake two Bitcoin, uh, or you know, the equivalent of two times the value of that coin in Bitcoin. Why? Because the, the volatility of Bitcoin is such that the value of your collateral would fluctuate tremendously. So with DAI coin, uh, that over collateralization preserves the value of the, the peg, as it were. Then you have algorithmic stable coins, uh, Terra and Luna being the, the, the most uh, interesting example where UST and Luna tokens were kind of redeemable for each other. I mean, basically the, the supply of Terra depended on the supply of Luna. So uh, this was the subject of a very famous market meltdown a few months ago where um, essentially the, 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 the Terra foundation completely, you know, shat the bed. Uh, what happened, exactly what happened, nobody's quite sure about this, but there was a, a run on the Terra Foundation's supplies, and it had to do with staking. Basically, there were exchanges and uh, protocols out there which offered people ridiculous returns. I mean, like 17% returns for depositing, like in a bank account almost their holdings of UST into that account. So you would deposit UST and they would pay you 17% yield on that UST. Why? Because stable coins happen to be a very efficient way for cryptocurrency traders to move in and out of their positions. Um, going a little bit off topic here, but this is worth exploring a little bit. UST, uh, in order to, in, for the Terra Foundation to maintain the value of that peg, they had to burn a whole bunch of Luna to keep that, that peg afloat. So the more Luna they burned, the more problematic the peg became until finally it all just collapsed and it broke down. Uh, there's some really good articles that you can read on the subject and I've done my own analysis on it for you know, another project. Um, not 
you know, not, not related to anything I've written for the site, but the, the, the whole Terra Luna fiasco really, I mean, destroyed the community's faith in algorithmic stablecoins, and I think rightly so, because there's nothing behind them. There's nothing there. And then you have, uh, finally, the, the, the fourth category of stablecoin, which is asset-backed stablecoins. Now, these are really interesting because they are redeemable, supposedly, against some underlying asset like gold or silver or oil. Um, the, there are some really cool gold-backed stablecoins out there. But, you know, the question is how trustworthy are they? Because if they're, if they're redeemable for tokens that just say you happen to own some gold, but in reality you don't own it, then that's no different than investing in... Um, SPDR, the, the spider, um, the, the, the gold ETF that tracks, the, uh, not, not SPDR, uh, GLD, the, uh, the ETF that tracks the price of gold. It's, I think, uh, one-tenth. Uh, so, like, if gold is, is trading at, what is it, uh, I don't know, $1,800 a troy ounce, then one share of GLD is $180, for example. And that's just... Uh, it doesn't lend you any ownership rights in the in the underlying gold. It just allows you to gain uh, speculative value from from the price of gold, the, the the fluctuation in the price of gold. So, is cryptocurrency money? Uh, no, for the most part, it's not. By any reasonable definition, most cryptocurrencies are not money. The special class of stable coins, specifically fiat-backed stablecoins are generally considered money. And that's, not, that's not, not just me saying that. That would be the European Payment Services Directive 2 says that, the uh, E-Money Authorization Act of the United Kingdom says that, the President's Working Group report from 2020, 21, uh, 21 says that, uh, the Japanese regulatory agency, the, the SEC of Japan says, pretty much that. The Payment Services Act of Singapore says that uh, most countries around the world regard fiat-backed stablecoins as money. And then there's, you know, from the, the branch of stablecoins, there is also CBDCs, central, ba central bank digital currencies. These are by definition money because the central bank controls them. And interestingly enough, up until the Banderistan War erupted, the World Economic Forum types kept saying the world is going to be ruled by digital currencies. There will be, you know, CBDCs all over the place. Uh, and we're going to have a global CBDC that controls the you know, world money supply and everyone will be invested in. And it's really, it's, it's a way of controlling your future because if you are rely on a central bank to provide you with money, then the central bank can shut you down instantly. Uh, now, such a CBDCs actually do exist in real life. There's such a one in operation in China. Uh, China is looking to roll out a hybrid retail CBDC, which will be used by all of its banks and all of its citizens. And it's in, I think, pilot phase right now. That's the so-called digital renminbi or digital yuan. Uh, Russia, the interesting thing is the Russian central bank up until the Banderistan war was dead set against cryptocurrencies, hated them and said, we want nothing to do with crypto. But after the Banderistan War, the Central Bank of Russia 
decided to look into the idea of creating a digital ruble, which will, I think, go live uh, next year. I mean, they're, they're in research phase right now. But the idea behind the digital ruble is to facilitate and enable payments um, via blockchain that allow for rapid settlement of contracts without necessarily having to physically exchange money and without having to deal with the issues of a, a, a messaging system like uh, the Western SWIFT system, which resides and it's headquartered in Belgium, but it's really controlled by the US and the European powers. And the Russian SFPS, I know because I've done a project looking into some of this stuff, the Russian uh, payment system is probably, I would say probably as good as SWIFT in terms of its capabilities, but is nowhere near the scale and power of SWIFT. I mean, SWIFT, there's something like 12 billion messages sent every year along SWIFT. That's the number I remember from my research. Uh, SFPS is, you know, it's a few million every year. It's, it's a completely different scale. So we're talking a totally different level of scale and power. But eventually, I do think we'll see some sort of digital currency come up um, in the form of a CBDC. I do think that's basically inevitable. I don't think it's going to be quite as dangerous as the WEF would like it to be. I don't think it's going to be as global as the WEF wants it to be. And that's a very good thing, in my opinion. So next, we move on to the energy questions. Um, what about being independent from Russian energy supplies as much as possible? Uh, autarky is hardly an achievable goal, but still that leaves the question of what domestic resources Europe has and to what extent they could replace uh, American or Russian gas. Okay, so the first thing we need to understand is that Europe did not jump into bed with Russia just because the political elites wanted to trap themselves into some sort of strange deal with the Russians. That was never the case. Here's the reason why Europe transitioned from its own energy supplies to Russian supplies. Number one, Europe doesn't have anything like the kind of gas reserves that Russia does. So naturally, the cheapest and most efficient way to get gas is not from Norway, which has to go deep into the sea to get it, but from Russia through overland routes. It's cheaper, it's much more effective, it's much cleaner, it's much more reliable. Uh, the grade is much more uh, uniform. In terms of oil, again, no question, Europe doesn't have those oil reserves that Russia does. So, inevitably, the cheapest and easiest place to get it is not from the Middle East, where you have to deal with the batshit insane politics of the place, and, of course, also the, the need to get tankers from the Middle East uh, down the Red Sea and up and through you know, um, the Suez Canal and, and so on and so forth from Saudi Arabia. The easiest way to get exactly the kind of fuel that European factories needed was from Russia. And what about Russian coal? Well, that a lot of it came from domestic politics. I mean, Germany and France and Poland and a number of other European countries have lots and lots of coal. They have actually probably more coal than they need, but they can't get to it. Why? Because of politics. The, in the 1970s, when 
the coal miners were digging this stuff out of the ground. They formed unions and political representation and really fought hard for their political rights. I mean, they were very much a band of brothers, as they should have been, because, you know, you're down in the dark doing very difficult, dirty, dangerous work. And you tend to bond with the men around you. And when you feel like you're not being treated well, of course, you're going to rise up and take an activist political role. And that's exactly what the coal miners did in Germany, in France, in other European nations in the 1970s. They, they went on strike in, in the UK. I mean, it's a classic example. The UK has loads of coal. It just refuses to mine it. Um, it was just too difficult to get the coal miners to agree to uh, what the European and British political elites considered a reasonable deal. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that because it's a very emotional topic, not for me, but for a lot of people. Um, and it's hard to say exactly who was right and who was wrong. I mean, the coal miners had some very valid points, but the European elites did not want to deal with the headaches of paying those wages for that resource. So inevitably, because the cost of mining and extracting fossil fuels out of the ground in Europe became so high, the European elites shifted to countries where costs were lower. The cheapest place to get coal, oil, gas was Russia. And that relationship did not evolve suddenly. It didn't happen just because, you know, Muti Merkel and uh, Gerhard Schroeder were in power. It evolved over decades. I mean, this, this, this was a transformation of Europe's energy industry that started back in the 1960s and carried on through the 70s, through the 80s, it was mutually beneficial for all parties. I mean, the Europeans got cheap energy, the Russians got hard currency, the Soviets at the time got hard currency. It was good for everybody. But does this mean that Europe could replace uh, Russian gas or American gas for that matter? Well, yes, they could. The question is, do they have the political will to do it? And the answer is no. If you actually look at the use of fracking technology, hydrofracking to extract gas. Why is it that in 2008, when I was working in the energy industry uh, as a consultant, the price of natural gas was something like seven or eight dollars an MMBTU. And then a few years later, it collapsed down to like less than two dollars per MMBTU. What happened? The answer is the fracking revolution. Hydrofracking completely changed the landscape where now all of a sudden you could actually get to these pockets of natural gas that you could never get to through conventional drilling. It's a totally new and revolutionary way, or it was back then, of extracting a precious resource. The Americans took great advantage of it, and that's the reason why their natural gas prices crashed, and they were able to enjoy an energy revolution, at least for a while. The same is true of oil. If you can drill for oil in places where it's easy to get, then you can become truly energy independent. Now, is autarky an, a hardly an achievable goal? Well, it is for some countries. It is for countries that are really rich in resources. I mean, Russia is the closest you can get in the modern day. It's completely independent in energy, food, electricity, you know, all the stuff that actually counts. It's becoming independent in high technology. I mean, these, uh, the Sukhoi, the Sukhoi, uh, Sukhoi, uh, Sukhoi Superjet, SSJ-100, is a completely domestically built aircraft. The T-14 Armata tank 
is completely domestically built, as far, pretty much as far as I know, including down to the transistors and microchips used in the tank. That's one of the reasons why it's been delayed for so long, because the Russians wanted to build an autarkic tank, something that could not be compromised by enemy agents. Contrast that to the F-35, which has Chinese-built magnets in it, and some of the other hardware that the Americans rely on. It has Chinese-made computer components and microchips, which, you know, the U.S. depends on foreign countries for their technology. So what could replace Russian or American energy? Well, if the Europeans had the guts and the political will to extract their own natural resources, they could become independent. Seriously, I'm not joking about this. If you look at Ukraine, for instance, Banderistan, back before it just, I mean, it, it shat the bed. If you look at Lugansk and Donetsk, those regions of Ukraine, what used to be regions of Ukraine, these were very, very rich in coal, in both anthracite and lignite coal. Uh, something like 90% of Ukraine's coal supply is in that part, in, in the Donbass itself. Ukraine's uh, offshore oil and gas fields are some of the richest in Europe. So it's not like Europe couldn't get access to these things if they wanted to. They just didn't want to. The Green Movement, which, by the way, was heavily funded by the Soviets in the 1980s and 1970s especially, came about as a way to stop that from happening. And Europe found itself trapped in this very weird political environment where you couldn't do oil, you couldn't do gas, you couldn't do... Uh, uh, coal, especially couldn't do coal because it's, you know, the fuel of Satan and so on. In reality, it's very energy efficient uh, relative to all the others. That is why in the United States, uh, baseline power plants are almost all coal-fired plants. That is why in China and India, they're building coal-fired plants like you wouldn't believe. Uh, there are, there's really no other more efficient way to get electricity. Is green energy uh, manageable? No. It's not. There's no way to fill in the gaps left from getting rid of all the other means of energy using green energy, so-called green energy. Solar, wind, um, hydropower, to some extent you could get away with, but not really. See, the, the problem is energy always comes with a cost. There's no such thing as a free lunch. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, that's, you know, just the law of the universe. Anytime you want to burn energy to get something, to get electricity, you have to pay a price to do it. With hydropower, you have to build a dam and, you know, put in turbines, and that creates a whole lot of ecological and economic problems, which you have to figure out. It's not, you know, straightforward. Geothermal power only works in certain parts of the world. Solar power, the, the photovoltaic panels that you have to buy can only be manufactured using fossil fuels to make them. That's a fact. You can't make them without coal. You have to burn coal to produce solar panels and they're not recyclable. When, you put the, when, you, when they expire, when, they, when they, you know, they, they lose their ability to do what they do, you have to bury them in a landfill and they leak chemicals into the soil. Uh, the fiberglass blades and the, you know, the, the, the towers that you build for wind turbines, those are not recyclable either. And you need, um, you need uh, hydrocarbons to make the things. So you cannot pretend that green energy is a good substitute. More than that, you cannot pretend that 
put, you know, even if you covered all of Europe in solar panels, it still wouldn't be enough because you wouldn't have the availability of the sun uh, hitting those panels to properly generate enough electricity. More than that, it's, it's not just a matter of generating the electricity, it's a matter of transporting the electricity. And this is really where you get most of the losses in electric, uh, in, in electric power capacity. Number one, these sources cannot generate enough power to meet peak demand. They just can't. It's nowhere near enough. Number two, even if they could, they could only do it locally. There's this stupid infographic that says if you covered you know, a certain small, tiny part of Africa, the, the Sahara Desert with solar panels completely covered it, you would get enough solar power to power the entire world. That's bullshit. Because even if you could generate the capacity, you can't transport it in an efficient enough fashion to get it to the places it needs to go without losing all of the electricity. All of it. Can't be done. So you cannot get away from the need for fossil fuels. Just, it's not possible. You could substitute it with nuclear power and reduce your dependency on fossil fuels that way. But nuclear power plants come with their own problems and the biggest of those is spent nuclear fuel. This is one of the reasons why the United States has had such a difficult time building nuclear power plants over the last 30 years. Where do you put the spent fuel? The, when you have a, a nuclear power plant with three reactors, typically, you run two of them uh, per year and then you know, one is shut down and being cleaned out and all the spent fuel is being removed. It has to be removed and stored in you know, very specific ways. So you've really only got two-thirds of your generation capacity running at any point in time. But technology has advanced to the point where you can build very safe, very well-maintained, very, uh, very relatively low-maintenance nuclear reactors. I mean, there's no good reason to avoid nu using nuclear power. It's a tremendous, tremendous asset. But it, it doesn't come for free. There's no such thing as free, okay? So is it possible for Europe to become energy independent? Yes. I mean, there's plenty of coal still in the ground in Poland, in Germany, in the UK. Is it likely? No, because the Europeans don't have convinced themselves that these energy sources are dirty and unclean and ugly and, that's, and sinful. And that's ridiculous. They're not. They do come with a cost. Yes, if you burn coal, your air is going to be more smoggy and sooty and nasty. Yes, if you extract gas out of the ground, your air quality is going to be a bit lower. That's true. But if you, this is where, you know, private property rights comes in. You can compensate people for the damage done to their environment by making them owners, stewards of that resource. They can control the revenue streams that come in from it. They can control the air quality around them and they can be compensated by the companies that come in and uh, kind of exploit these resources. I mean, this is where the capitalist free market mechanism becomes so important. This is exactly why we have that mechanism. But, you know, Europeans aren't interested in using it. I mean, mostly because they're weenies and pussies. I mean, that's, I, that's, I, I really have no other way to describe them. They're, they're, they've, they've sacrificed their future standard of living on this ridiculous green dream of net zero carbon emissions. I mean, why would you, it's such a stupid dream because they think that carbon dioxide is a problem. It's not. It's, it, carbon dioxide is a natural byproduct of 
industrial development and growth and well really it's plant food so why on earth are we depriving ourselves of growth for something that doesn't affect us carbon dioxide is not the driver of global warming in fact it is if you look at the if you actually look at the ice core data you're going to realize that temperatures increase and then carbon dioxide output increases it's not the other way around the co2 emissions lag temperature increases by about 700 to 1000 years and that's been known for like what 20 years now something like that so the Europeans have done a very good job of convincing themselves to destroy their own futures. And really, I can't have very much sympathy for that. The rest of the world doesn't think that way. It would be possible for Europe to become energy independent if it wanted to, but it doesn't seem to want to. That's, I think, quite long enough. This has gone on for a while and my voice is a bit hoarse, so I am going to end it there. Uh, thank you, as always, very much indeed for listening. Uh, this has been, it's a pleasure to answer these questions. Uh, I hope I did not ramble on too much, and I did actually provide some answers and some good information. Uh, please remember to like, share, comment, and subscribe. And if you have any follow-up questions, be sure to join my Telegram channel. You can interact with me directly there. You can interact directly with my community there. They're a really good bunch of guys. Uh, so make sure you do all that, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you very much. This is Didact. And this has been Domain Query, Mo Money, Mo Problems.